0: Welcome to the Fundamentally Right podcast, a programme that sheds a light on human rights in the European Union and the personal stories of those working to ensure their protection. I'm Richard Myron. The FRA is an agency of the European Union that investigates, researches and provides advice on people's rights and protections. Its work is based upon the Charter of Fundamental Rights, which came into force 10 years ago in December 2009. In this programme and across the series, we're focusing on the personal stories of some of those who work for the FRA. These are people who've chosen a career based upon a heartfelt belief in protecting human rights. In their own words, they say how and why they chose this path and why the Charter, and a particular aspect of it, is important. In this episode, I've been hearing from Friso Roskan Abing, who's the FRA's advisor on communication. He was previously a spokesman at the European Commission and also dealt with issues relating to asylum policy. Friso's interest in this area goes back to his upbringing and youth in the Netherlands.
1: I am from the Netherlands, so I was born and raised in The Hague, which um, is now being branded as the, the capital of international justice. Oh, yeah,
0: but i
1: I guess what shaped my, my world view were two immediate sources of influence, uh, directly, indirectly, consciously or not, which was my mother, who was working in the area of children's rights. So she worked for an institution which took care of vulnerable children who um, were being put in foster houses with foster parents, and she would check regularly how they were doing. Though she didn't uh, discuss individual details at home, um, she did mention to us um, in a discreet but clear manner when, you know, what kind of hardship children could could have, and of course we were very privileged and lucky not to be victim of abuses. Um, so she worked there her entire life, and. Very early on, I I developed an interest in politics at home. We, every single evening at home, discussed politics. My father was a more conservative person, and uh, at the other spectrum, the three children were more progressive, more liberal, so we always had interesting debates. And uh, politics were discussed almost every single day. And when my secondary school offered participation for me in the so-called Model United Nations, which is a wonderful institution which still exists up until this very day. And even my own 15-year-old son is participating again in the Model United Nations.
0: Delegates, it is my pleasure to welcome you to the United Nations Developmental Programme at Mile 32.
1: You know, where you uh, represent as a school a country and you have some sort of, uh, obviously a fake, but a played... Um, General Assembly of the United Nations, with General Assembly meetings, with committee meetings, where you negotiate with other peers of yours, pupils of, I was 15, another year I did, I was 16, where you negotiate big problems. And there, I remember I volunteered to become member of the Human Rights Committee as well. So I guess it sort of started there as well. All those delegates in favor of draft resolution 1.1, Please raise your placards. So, I went to the University of Amsterdam and I started studying uh, law. Um, it was the early 80s, I'm afraid, this long ago, where we had uh, demonstrations um, to support Lech Walenza and others in Poland, uh, who had set up this trade union Solidarność, which, as we all know, really was the start of ultimately the fall of the Iron Curtain. There, we would um, uh, support, attend demonstrations, and hand out pamphlets, etc. Very innocent stuff. I'm not a big hero there. I haven't, uh, you know, been doing big, big, uh, courageous things. But I was always busy with things which were playing at the, the world stage. The fact that the Netherlands government would or would not have cruise missiles on the territory was another thing which worried me a lot. So we would uh, again uh, join big demonstrations, which were demonstrating against this. It was a very incredibly active, very liberal time in Amsterdam. The University of Amsterdam, which was well known to be liberal and to be quite active. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. Uh, So I, I initially, because I was still quite young, I had graduated very fast from university. I uh, applied for an internship at Amnesty International, just doing some, some voluntary work, but they were uh, fully booked by volunteers. So they sent me to the Dutch Refugee Council, of which i had never heard, which was um, at the time small and ultimately became very strong, very well organized non governmental organizations whose mandate is to protect refugees, to assist. Government, you could say, uh, by developing decent asylum policies, fair and efficient procedures, who did uh, host refugees initially before it became uh, responsibility of the government and of local communities. And there I started um, as a volunteer at the time when you had um, refugees coming from Sri Lanka, Tamils, because of the civil war, you had refugees from Ghana. You had refugees coming from Afghanistan also at that time, Mujahideen fighters who came. And we were uh, receiving them also and seeing if they were refugees in the sense of the Refugee Convention. So we, as a Dutch Refugee Council, would ourselves be authorized to provide them support. Uh, So they they first needed to qualify for this, if you like. I remember very well that um, initially I was overwhelmed and uh, I won't say depressed, but you got a lot of um, horrifying stories to her. I also went to a part of the Amsterdam Schiphol Airport where refugees arriving by plane were initially detained. And we were provided access as the recognized NGO, to speak with them, to counsel with them, and um, there, there were horrific stories of refugees from Iran who were just from one moment to the other. Uh, their family were, were either killed uh, by the new Ayatollah regime, or even in a more subtle way were you know, highly skilled and highly academic persons were being uh, treated in a very deteriorating manner, Very, in in a way was just so disrespectful, and they were uh, degraded from being a professor in law to being a cleaner of a building of a public ministry, simply because they didn't uh, agree with the Ayatollah views. And I was just shocked, of course. I was very young then. I was shocked by these stories that this could happen, that people this, did this to each other. The stories of the Tamils, who um, entire villages were were just uh, extinguished on the other side, and uh, where entire, yeah, villages and, and parts of Sri Lanka almost lost their culture because everything was erased simply because they had the the wrong ethnic origin. They were Tamil, and. Um, it's um it was it was of course incredibly important for me to to hear these stories also because very quickly i learned that there it wasn't going to help them if i would only be crying and be very emotional so i started to develop there some sort of a professionalism which is to deal with that professionally whilst being sufficiently empathetic at, for yourself also to recognize that this is something the reason why you do this, but to ultimately make a distinction between showing empathy and compassion, I think I learned there, empathy is important but it could not help the person with whom you have empathy if you, if you just cry with the person. So you need to distance yourself a little bit from this, be compassionate, but then try to turn your compassion into action, constructive action which can actually help the person concerned.
0: Priso, you just mentioned and talked about your upbringing and the beginnings and the roots, in a way, of your, of your career. We're here to talk about the Charter of Fundamental Rights being its 10th anniversary. In particular, the title of Citizens' Rights. Why does that resonate in particular with you?
1: Well, I'm, I'm a very concrete and down to earth person. So, whereas, you know, the other headings of the Charter of Fundamental Rights, uh, freedom and and, um, justice, etc., are important in themselves. I'm very interested how we can bring the importance, the recognition of the importance and the added value of human rights for everyone to the ordinary person. You know, there is still a belief, regrettably, that human rights are only for a few or that it's a left-wing elitist hobby or that uh, human rights are only protected when you are a migrant, when you are a minority, uh, when you are a refugee or an LGBTI person. Whereas, of course, we all have human rights. Every single person living in the European territory has rights and they are protected by the Charter of Fundamental Rights. And the citizens' rights chapter makes it pretty concrete what some of those rights are. It has some rights, such as to vote for European Parliament, to stand for European Parliament. It has the right to vote in local elections, which I find very important.
0: Why is that so important? And some people might say, actually, no, it's national elections or whatever. What is it about local elections that you think is is most important?
1: Well, increasingly, I think there is now a growing recognition about the importance of what's happening at local level. And some people would call mayors of of big cities the new prime ministers of the world, the new world leaders. Because in cities, particularly big cities, of course, you have all the issues. You can have security issues, immigration, integration, living together, all of this comes together in big cities and also in smaller cities, also on the countryside. Now, how you govern, how you administer those cities... The priorities you set with limit, how you spend the limited budget is subject of local elections. So I am increasingly interested in voting this for this level of elections. And, you know, it's just very good that the Charter of Fundamental Rights offers us that opportunity. I would have hoped that it would have gone further even more that you also, when you live in a member state where you're, you don't have the nationality of... Nevertheless, you also will be entitled to vote for national level. Take my little bit crazy example. I'm a Dutch national, but I left the Netherlands 26 years ago. However, I am still legally entitled and I get these invitations each and every time to vote for the national elections for a country where I haven't been active, paying taxes, living for 26 years. Of course, I go back now and then to visit family and friends, and I'm not excluding it. Ultimately, I may come back there. But it's a little bit strange to be entitled to vote for something which is not impacting you. Whereas on the other hand, I'm living in Austria for more than 10 years now, and I'm not entitled to vote for national elections. And you know, also in this country, a lot of things are happening with political movements, which you may not like necessarily coming in the government or not. I would have liked to have a say in this, and which I don't have. But voting then, at least for the local level is a right which you have to cherish and I'm afraid this is also part of my upbringing that my father didn't care for whom we would vote. He himself was a conservative. Uh, He never imposed on me any choice for the party, but he did insist that I would make use of my voting rights. And by the way, the second thing he suggested to me is to vote for a woman. And here we're talking about the early 80s, so I thought it was quite progressive of my conservative father to say there are far too many men in the parliament. Whomever party you choose, do that what you like, but consider voting for a woman.
0: Yeah, that's uh, in those days, I think very progressive. Yeah. Drilling down on some of the, the articles within this title of Citizens' Rights, we've also got there the freedom of movement and residence. Now, I know that this is something which means a great deal to you, as it means a great deal to many people mm-hmm. across the European Union today. What does it mean to you, that phrase, freedom of movement and residence?
1: When you take a look at Article 45 of the chart, freedom of movement and of residence, again, it is full of complicated legal language, let's be honest. You know, it's not a really user-friendly document, the Charter. But what this symbolises, what it testifies is just so big and so important that you know this is something which all of us in the European Union probably consider the biggest added value of us being EU citizens or living at the EU territory because what it basically means is that you have the right to a not be stuck to the country where you were born you can hope that you're born in a country which you like but if you're not or if you have ambitions to study elsewhere to live elsewhere in an era of globalization where work is just fluid and mobile you need to be flexible actually this is what it allows for i remember really the days that with my family we would go as many dutch people would do with the tent in the back of the car we would go to camping sites in france to just spend your summer summer holidays there and Moving from Netherlands to France, you have to cross two borders. Netherlands-Belgium and Belgium-France. And whereas, of course, we were good citizens. Nevertheless, it always felt strange. You were a little bit afraid when we were going to approach the border. Because it was a border which was shut down with barriers. It gave the signal, what are you doing here? We're not sure if we're going to let you in. You had people in uniforms. And I was always a little bit scared by getting closer and closer to the border. And you had to show, of course, your passports. And, oh, my God, we got uh, very nervous when my mother couldn't find all the five pass- passports <laughs> within one minute. And we saw the, uh, the face of the uh, officer getting more and more grumpy. And we always had a feeling of relief when, after those few minutes, the barrier opened and shut down behind us. We went to the second check very often. And again, the same uh, anxiety happened there. And when we had passed this, we could relieve. But going back from our holidays was even worse because there, my father, being um, somebody who loves good food and wine, would want to bring some wine uh, with him back, despite uh, the warnings of my mother, please don't do it. <laughs> We're not allowed to do this. He did bring a box of wine, something, and this, of course, ex- exacerbated our feelings of anxiety. Funny enough, now, if you travel from Netherlands to France, not only do you not see a single border, nowadays, just to continue the example of the import of wine, nowadays you can import freely 111 litres of beer and 90 litres of wine, including maximum of 60 litres of sparkling wine. It's very funny that everything we take now for granted or the fact that we can just cross countries without having one second of delay, which for the new generation, which has an attention span of eight seconds, as you know, is something I don't think they appreciate enough, but I certainly do. So when I see this article, the freedom of movement and of
0: residence... To me, it means a lot. Do you think that the progression we're we're headed inevitably, thanks to the Charter and and things like it, towards ever greater freedoms? Or what, if any, are your anxieties underlying that?
1: Well, you know, we, we take it for so much granted, everything we have now. Very often it is said, and rightly so, without having any impact that we forget that the existence of the European Union has been a guarantee of peace. We haven't been in war at this continent for 70 years. Within the European Union, it's something which is just incredible from a historic perspective. We are taking for granted democracy. We are taking for granted the fact that we have impartial separated powers, impartial judiciary, etc. But many of this is currently a bit under threat, I have to say. So for me, who has experienced the old days, and not even the worst days, as my parents did with the Second World War, but other type of, um, you know, how things could be done as well. It's just worrying, I have to say. So we better cherish and protect what we have now, recognize that, you know, this is not for granted. Democracy needs to be defended, not taken for granted. The fact that we have that freedom of residence, the freedom of movement is amazing. I see with my own children how easy it is. At a certain point, with us having four children, we had four children, working, living, studying in four different EU member states. And that is just an amazing achievement. Let's cherish this.
0: That was Friso Roskam Abing, the FRA's communication advisor, setting out what citizens' rights mean and their importance. In other episodes of this series, you can hear about how growing up behind the Iron Curtain led one young girl to seek out a career in the law and how witnessing a violent beating as a boy shaped the viewpoint of the person who now heads the fra. This podcast has been presented by me, Richard Myron, and produced by Anouk Mie. This is an Earshot Strategies production.